Good morning. How are you feeling? Bit hot under the collar? Well, if you're not, you will be soon. Temperatures set to rise. We're familiar with yellow and even red weather warnings, but uh, usually they alert us to, to storms and those kind of conditions. This is very different and quite unusual. Yes, indeed. It's quite unusual that we do issue a high temperature warning, but it's not unprecedented. The temperatures occasionally do reach uh, the very high 20s or 30 degrees in Ireland. But uh, we're going to see those high temperatures above 25 degrees for three days over a good stretch Mm -hmm. of the country, which means that it's a fairly widespread weather event across the country. And so we have issued this yellow level warning. The temperatures will climb to the low to mid 20s on Saturday, with the highest temperatures in the Midlands. And then as we move through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, all areas very warm. But all is that bit warmer in inland counties, there will be the effect of sea breezes along coast. So the coast will be perhaps a little bit cooler, but nonetheless still high 20s on Sunday. And Monday will be the warmest of the three days. We can expect temperatures to break 30 degrees over a good part of the country on Monday, which is quite unusual. And Monday will be the hottest day. As Jerry Murphy from Met Aaron almost never says Scorchio. It's going to be sweating and hot and it's going to be tough out there. It's very tough out there in, in to be Irish in the heat as, as a coming from a pasty red-faced Irish man I can tell you it's not not an easy thing to take all that sun but we'll take it and we will we will handle it really badly and we won't put on enough sun cream and we're going to do that together and we're all going to look at state on Monday that's that's what's going to happen. Speak for yourself, sir. But if you are sitting there shining, gently perspiring or just plain sweating, spare a thought for our European neighbours who are right in it and it is just too much. On Morning Ireland, Gavin spoke to Alison Roberts in Lisbon. How are people coping? How are you coping? Well, actually, most houses in Portugal do not have air conditioning. It's not at all common. Uh, People who are a little well off and can afford those electricity bills, higher electricity bills, uh, may well have it. But as I say, it's not common. So basically what people do is during the day, they close the windows, close all of their blinds. Most houses here have blinds on the outside of the windows. And at night, uh, when hopefully the air is a little cooler, they throw everything open again and just hope that the the mass of the house can cool down. There have been a few nights, though, when it hasn't really cooled down, and that's a problem. And in Spain, yet another heat wave. And what they do not want is a dome. Anya spoke to Miguel Ancho Morado in Madrid. This is, according to the weather forecasters, due to a heat plume from North Africa. But there are fears it could become a heat dome. Now, that's when that heat wave gets stuck, doesn't it, over the European continent? Yes, this is because to the west of the Iberian Peninsula, there's a storm system. And uh, the two things together, <coughs> the, the, the mass of air, of hot air from the Saharan Desert, from North Africa, and these uh, storm system cause these, this peculiar situation, in fact, is the worst uh, the worst uh, heat wave on record is even worse than that of 2015 or 2007. And uh, it could be still the, the worst in, also in terms of duration, but th- that we don't know. Precisely because that storm system to the west could change things dramatically and then the heat wave will come to, to an end. But for the time being, there's no sign of that. Yes, I imagine there's various prayers being said in that regard. And in London, Vincent McAvinney with Philip in for Clare. 
Vincent, we're used to hearing about COBRA meetings in response to acts of terrorism, but you're having a COBRA meeting as a response to the Met Office issuing a red weather warning. Yeah, that's right. This is an incredibly rare warning. It essentially means a heat wave so severe that it, that it affects uh, extends outside the health and social care system. So we knew that there was going to be real pressure on the health and emergency services over the next few days. But what will also likely be affected is public transport, uh, roadways, and the energy grid as well. That is why uh, this meeting is being held. And the actual area is essentially uh, the sort of southeast and the central part of England, taking in London, Oxford, Nottingham, Birmingham, Manchester, uh, Hull, so huge population centres as well. So there is a bit of a worry about this. So they have really stepped up the public health messaging to try and advise people of what's coming. It seems pretty clear now we might break the UK temperature record set in 2019, which is 38.7 degrees centigrade in Cambridgeshire. They're talking about it hitting 40 now on Monday and Tuesday. Ooh, that's high. Prompting Mr Hot Mess to ask this. How are your uh, newspapers treating this? Is this an excuse to print pictures of attractive women in bikinis or is it being linked to climate change? I mean, I don't think the British tabloids will ever stop trying to publish pictures of attractive women in bikinis, to be honest. But, you know, heat wave, exam results, whatever it is, they, they do try and do that. Um, I think that there is a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, is this going to be the new normal? There is also a lot of talk about potentially uh, reservoirs running low later this summer, hosepipe bans, doing things like taking shorter showers, uh, the kind of uh, plants and things that people might need to start putting in their gardens in the UK that take up less water and do better in the heat. There is a bit of a more adult discussion, not, maybe not so much in the tabloids, but in most of the broadsheet papers about uh, this being a real sign of, of the climate impact uh, being felt here in the UK. And not to melt your lolly entirely, but all that climate change talk is getting very close to home. On Liveline, Katie and calls from listeners getting up close and personal with it all. Here's Rebecca in Portugal. It was a bit of a crazy day, so my parents live over here and I'm only visiting. And we got a call yesterday morning from friends in Paneras Altos, which is a golf resort about four kilometres from us to say there was a fire there and could they come up to our house for, for safety? And they did. And we were we thought we were fine here, but the fire started travelling and we got a phone call then from my dad at about midday to say to, to leave the house that it was only about a kilometre and a half away from the house. The GNR, who are the Garvey over here, they were blocking all the roads um, and I'm just trying to get people out who were young children to make sure everybody was safe. So and was there, was there at, like, was it kind of panicky or what was the atmosphere like when you were getting people together? I, I, I guess... Because there were so many children, you're 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 trying to stay calm, but the smoke was pretty bad around our area. So, it, it, you know, it's more we we knew where the fire was, and and we couldn't see the flames from from our villas. Um, yes, at that stage, but the smoke was really really heavy. So it was just trying to get down to fresh air. So we headed down towards the beach area. Um, but then we were sent from there, and we we, we drove then the back roads to Quatera, and that's when. Like the flames were all alongside us we were driving and they must have been like 50 foot high. So that was that was pretty scary. And for Rebecca, all the science came home with a thud. I think a lot of this is you hear about what happens because a lot of the worst yeah. of this is happening to, to, to people in poorer countries and in, you know, the developing world. They are getting the brunt of decisions and lifestyle uh, patterns that we in this part of the, the world are responsible for. So, you know, it's not always that you come face to face with the worst, you know, 
impacts of this, but you did yeah, yesterday. Look, we did, and, and yes, it is very scary. Um, and, you know, we are very lucky in Ireland, I guess, with, with the climate we have, but it's seeing it happening somewhere else in the world. If, if everyone was in the situation initially saw what we saw yesterday, um, I think it would make anybody sit up and take notice um, about what's happening around the world with climate. From Liveline. Now, it must be said that this summer hasn't exactly been sparkling with sunshine, so any little bit of sun, you'd be only delighted with yourself. But all of this, a lot more than just a fine spell. Here's climate change scientist and emeritus professor at Maynooth University, John Sweeney with Clare. You may say to yourself, well, is this natural, uh, these events occurring? And, and you know, I, I, w- I would have, if you'd been asking me the question five years ago, say I'd have been very reluctant to say climate change was causing many of these extreme events to occur. But now we know from advances in climate science that we can run our climate models not once, but several hundred times and run them with CO2 at pre-industrial levels with CO2 at current levels and say, how often do we get a heat wave like we're seeing in France and Spain and Portugal at the moment uh, under pre-industrial conditions by comparison to today? And the figures that come back are really alarming because it tells us that for a very similar heat wave three years ago, uh, the probability of that occurring and thus the probability of what we're seeing today occurring is enhanced by between 10 and 100 times. So the fingerprint of climate change is is really now becoming the dominant driver of extreme events. And we're going to have to live with this uh, for the foreseeable future. We're going to see more severe events. We're going to see more frequent events. And it's going to be a high price we're going to pay for climate change. (sighs) Heavy sigh. Nothing new there. And yet not what any of us want to hear. So in the meantime, perhaps eyes to other planets, not to mess them up, of course not. But if we could, you know, just have a little mooch around the universe just to see. And as of this week, we now have a much better idea of what's going on. Because it was a very big week for sky watchers and space enthusiasts. And they do not come much more enthusiastic than Kevin Nolan, lecturer in physics at Technological University Dublin. I can't imagine they make this big of a hula baloo and then just show us something boring. Wouldn't that be cruel? But they didn't. And the they in question was NASA and the James Webb Space Telescope. Over $9 billion and 10 years late. But Christmas to the power of 10,000 for Kevin. Staggering piece of technology. It's a six and a half metre telescope, as big as we can build on Earth, put on tennis court size heat shields out a million and a half kilometres from the Earth. And this is one of the most extraordinary technical and engineering feats we've ever achieved, and they've pulled it off. Right. There was high risk for 29 days through January just gone. 150 moving engines on it, motors to open it out. Pulled it off with spectacular success. So, and so this huge yoke is yeah, out there, 1.5 yeah. million... Kilometres away. Right. Yeah. Uh, and co- travelling around the sun with the Earth. Right. And now these are the first images coming to us tomorrow. Uh, and- Wow, and a really big gulp of coffee here because these are the biggest of questions being asked and maybe even being answered. The big question is where did all black holes come from and we're wondering did they form around then and then how did galaxies form and then the other end of it is with our galaxies today it's going to look at planets to see is there signatures of life on them. It'd be able to tell from the atmospheres of exoplanets if there's life there. So it's looking not just at that end of it but today's universe to see are we alone? 
or did yes. the results of all this activity... I, I, I do reckon that most people in the know reckon that we're not. Well, I, the numbers kind of stack up. What, what are we talking There's possibly two trillion planets in, the, mil- trillion in the Milky Way galaxy. Planets. Some say there could be upwards of uh, 30 billion Earth-sized planets or Earth-like planets in the Milky Way alone. And there's two trillion galaxies. So the thing is, is that the numbers <laughs> look good. But then again... We haven't found it yet, so who knows. And Ray, like many of us, was trying to get to grips with all of this. Mm. Uh, just on, on, on sort of processing this in my head. So some of these pictures will be of stars that don't exist anymore. Is yeah, that correct? Yeah, that's right. Because the galaxies are so far away, 12, 13 billion years ago, that the stars in them usually last about 5 billion years. So the stars that we're seeing might have died before the, even the Earth formed. That's how old we're looking back. As I say, and the light they produce that's what we're it seeing it was travelling all this time we came along and now we're putting our telescope in the way to catch the light yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice thought I need a lie down after yeah. that <laughs> so I can see that you'd probably lose sleep tonight oh yeah. yeah yeah. no no we, yeah. we're always losing sleep on this yeah. <laughs> yeah and it is quite possible Kevin Nolan didn't even go to bed because he was up for Morning Ireland and it is mind blowing is. isn't it yeah so we are looking at the dawn of time, literally back. In fact, one of the primary objects of James Webb is to try and see, can I see the first stars that were born in the universe? If that works, um, it'll be a Nobel Prize. It'll be that big a discovery. And Rachel was getting ambitious. In 60 seconds or less, please. How then is all of that likely to change our perception of the world? God, yeah. I know that's a ridiculous <clears throat> well, question to answer in a know, minute. What but... I like to say is, it's great to know what the universe is actually like. It doesn't always have to be amazing and surprising, but we're learning the truth of the universe we live in. But if we detect evidence of life on other planets, that's Christopher Columbus landing in Haiti moment. That is all better on for the future for humanity in terms of if there's life out there, that gives humanity something different to think about in terms of our own future. And with Claire Francis McCarthy, Education and Outreach Officer at the Black Rock Castle Observatory, she too was popping out of her skin, having seen the first image. Oh, I'm still coming down from the buzz. This particular image, they're calling it the Webb First Deep Field, it's just knocked Hubble out of the park for the depth and the quality and the clarity of what it's seeing. So it's it, the first, first image that was released last night was showing galaxies, incredibly distant galaxies that had been lensed by a galactic cluster in the foreground. So we looked at something nearby and that brought to focus the light of incredibly remote galaxies. And see, we're still not entirely sure how galaxies change and evolve and develop. And given that galaxies are where stars are formed, stars are where planets are found around, planets are where we have life and humans, our own origins are tied into what this telescope is telling us about the galaxies and how they appeared shortly after the universe formed. You're looking back in time. Yes, we're looking at the SMACs, it's actually called SMACS, the SMACS um, Galactic Cluster, SMACS 0723, which is visible from the Southern Hemisphere, but that doesn't matter to Webb. It's out there in space, so it can look and see it. And it's captured galaxies. So those are groups of, you know, a couple of hundred billion stars held together by gravity. This is the first Webb deep field of, we will hope, many. And it's a tiniest fraction of the sky. And there are thousands and thousands of galaxies. And if your head isn't melted after all of that, well done you. Back in a bit. Welcome back. 
The doll is on its holidays, 99s with flakes all round. And before they packed up, the government won a vote of no confidence, 85 for, 66 against. And four TDs who had left the parliamentary parties of the coalition backed the government, including Mark McSharry, formerly of Fianna Fáil. He joined Sarah on drive time on Wednesday and before they got into Tuesday night's vote, she played a clip from an interview with Taoiseach Michal Martin from Primetime. And I asked him if he gave you the commitment to Sligo Hospital um, that, that, that you said you've achieved in exchange uh, for, for your support for the government. This was his response. Not in exchange for, he had indicated prior to the weekend that he would be supporting us, but he did raise the issue with us and we're going to respond positively to that because cardiology services in the northwest are important. So, so um, explain to me the sequence there of, of that. No, I think the issue has arisen in terms of, of, of a change and suspension of an existing contract in relation to the provision of cardiology services in Sligo. There is an issue there that needs to be addressed, just as there is in Waterford. Okay, so this just so happened to coincide with Mark McSherry's so support being coincide. needed. But no, he had indicated prior to anything that he was going to support the government because he didn't believe that. He said himself, I think it was a Thursday or Friday, he said he didn't believe that we needed a general election. Okay, so when he said he has received those commitments in exchange for his support, in exchange for his support, that's not your understanding? He's used that language, but he did engage with the Minister of Health today and with myself in respect of cardiology service and MICA redress, which we have committed to on my But he has used that language. Is he correct in that language? Well, that's, that's a matter for Mark, but I think he's, he's, he makes his decisions on the basis on which he supports the government. Um, we engage with all independents who, well, who sorry, support Peter, the government. It's not just a matter for Mark, because you said no TDs were given side deals in exchange for their support. A TD is saying he was given a side deal in exchange for his support. Are you, dispu- are you disputing raised, what he's saying? We don't do side He raised an issue. A legitimate issue in terms yeah. of cardiology service in, cardi- in, in, in Sligo. We've responded positively to that, okay. as we would. So um, are you disputing what he's saying? Though, I'm that not that disputing this was... what I'm saying. I'm just making, I'm giving you the perspective and the sense of what we've committed All to. Right. So what then did Mark McSharry have to say? So Mark McSharry, there was no side deal. The, these commitments weren't given in exchange for support. Is, is that right? Well, just a couple of points, if I may, uh, Sarah. The first one is... Uh, this isn't a Mark McSharry deal. This is the entitlement of the people of the Northwest region covered by Sligo University Hospital. I was pleased to be in a position to exert some leverage yesterday in communications between the Taoiseach, myself, and the Minister for Health, which went on uh, from approximately 9.45 to approximately 4 o'clock yesterday. Uh, involved in that, on my insistence, was consultant cardiologist Dr. Donald Murray who this morning on Ocean FM confirmed the deal I announced. Um, so I'm not responsible for the script of the Taoiseach and Primetime, and indeed you did a very, very good job as a consummate professional you are at interviewing. But if you wanted to split hairs, he confirmed the position, as far as I'm concerned. He said the issue was raised, a legitimate issue, and that they responded positively to it. And Sarah fully acknowledged his right to advocate for his constituents, but she did want greater clarity on just how it had all gone down. In your view, would these commitments for cardiology services in Sligo University Hospital have been obtained unless you were involved in those negotiations and asked for those commitments to be given to you in exchange for your support. Was this a deal that these commitments would be given in exchange for your support? Was that a deal made between you and government? That's my understanding because there were several calls with Minister Donnelly and myself. There were several contacts with the Taoiseach. I did indicate on Saturday that the Chief Whip, I would be supportive, but I indicated the price for that that the Taoiseach before Cabinet yesterday. 
Okay, so, so when the Taoiseach said to me in primetime last night that you had indicated there was no need for a general election last week, well before you raised these issues in, in mm-hmm. Sligo University Hospital, you had said that, but you'd also said there will be a price for my support. Well, I informed them of the price yesterday morning. I'm not okay. going to waste a weekend that I was enjoying in Westport in the sunshine, uh, bartering. Uh, okay. I rather did it yesterday morning as time uh, approached closer to the vote. So you can and call do you it, think if you had turned uh, around and said... And political tactics, perhaps. Do you think if you turned around and said, I won't support the government, that those commitments to Sligo University Hospital would have been given? Yes, I believe that. And when pushed, it was still a yes, but with a longer timeline. Just to be clear on that last question, you're saying even if you hadn't supported the government, if you'd said to Jack Chambers yesterday, you know what, no, I'm not going to support you on this, you'd still have got the services in Sligo University Hospital. Um, Perhaps at at the same uh, pace as the draining of the Shannon, which I think was committed in the 1940s. So finally, this question from Sarah. Do you think it's right? That type of politics. I know I know you object to the phrase parish pump, but do you think it's right that because you're in the position that you're in and the government was in the position that they were in, that you were able to, as you say, exert leverage on the government to get services for your area when there are other areas that are just as, as uh, needy and just as deserving as those services who don't happen to have an independent TD who can exert that leverage. Is, is that the way this country should work? That's like me asking you, Sarah, what way should the Pat Kenny show run on News Talk? The reality is I'm responsible to the people of Sligo, North Leitrim, South Donegal and North Roscommon, and indeed a wider area in this context covered by Sligo University Hospital. I had a job to do. There was an opportunity, which doesn't arise very often, to do it, and I did it with pride. Okay, we might from drive time on Wednesday. Maureen Dowd is a columnist at the New York Times, and her Irish roots are very deep. Her parents met through Irish American circles, and she spoke to Miriam on Sunday about their relationship and her mother, who sounds like a dote. And he was Mike, she was Peggy, and I know you said that while you were the one at the newspaper, your mom Peggy, she was the real news junkie. Yes, she applied for a job at the Washington Post when she was 18 in 1926. And an editor there told her that the characters she'd meet as a reporter were way too shady for a nice young lady. I mean, that was way before they were going to let women in the newsroom. But she always found a way to write. You know, she just would, she worked for the the Hibernian Digest, and she was the national historian of the ancient order of Hibernians. My dad was the president. And she just wrote, even if it was just letters to me giving me instructions about, (laughs) you know, (laughs) she, one time in college, like, nobody invited me. In those days, women were waiting to be invited to a Valentine's dance, and she wrote me a letter she sent me a check for $15 and she said, buy some red lipstick because when you're blue, you should always wear red. Oh, I love your mother. Yeah, she was so sweet. You know, it's so funny because their biggest marital fight was uh, when they went to Ireland and she wanted to go right away to the grave of Michael Collins. And my dad was a Clare man, so he wanted to go to the grave of De Valera. (laughs) (laughs) That was a major battle. And although they'd started as Democrats, it didn't take a huge amount to flip them. 
The problem was then my mom fell totally in love with Ronald Reagan. So <laughs> the whole family became conservative because she had the hots for Reagan. And maybe because of this, these days they are family divided, politically at least. However, they really do manage to get along, despite the deep differences between Maureen and her siblings. So much so that her brother gets to take over her column once a year. Kevin is the one closest in age to me, and he is the one I let write the column once a year because I really think New York Times readers needed to hear from Red State America. They just can't (laughs) bury their heads in the sand about what the other side thinks. It's so interesting, though. You grew up in the same household, same parents. And politically, Kevin, he's very different to you, isn't he? How did that happen? Well, I often use this as an example. My dad stayed up all night the night Harry Truman was elected because he was so excited. My brother stayed up all night the night Donald Trump was elected because he was so excited. So unless the Democrats can figure out how they lost the working class like that, you know, and partly they lost it because some of some top Democrats sort of radiate a kind of disdain. They are very elitist. So I think, you know, they're going to have to fix that if they want to uh, get back control after this uh, midterms, which is shaping up to be a red wave. And far from being in an East Coast bubble, Maureen Dowd knows very well how the other side thinks and how easy it might be to fall out with those who don't agree with your views. My two siblings that are left are pro-life and I really respect that. I understand that. We don't argue about that. And sometimes my sister tells me what's on Fox News and I would disagree with it, but I don't. We never get in arguments about politics because I don't want that to interfere with my love for them. That's so interesting. And I assume, therefore, you have not been discussing the Roe versus Wade decision very much with your brother and sister. No, because I understand how Mm. they feel. I get it. You know, lots of times when Trump was elected, many of our columnists sort of went down, drove down to Texas and red states, and they said, wrote about it. They said they were trying to understand what this strange other people who voted for Trump, who they were and how they felt. And I don't need to do that. I just go home (laughs) to my family. I understand. But my love of family has to take precedence over having some political argument. I do have friends who have stopped speaking to siblings over this, you know, and we just Mm. are very conscious of the fact that that's not going to happen to us. Maureen Dowd with Miriam. James Vincent McMorrow has just released a new album. It's called The Less I Knew. But no TikTok whatevers or Insta stories for him, although he did take to Instagram to say he would not be doing social media and press promoting the album. He said, I love making music, but I really don't love the process of releasing it. And he spoke to Dave Fanning, but Dave asked him about the business side of music and how this disengagement might affect him. But if there are less interviews online, if there are less interviews in the newspapers, when you release an album, much less than you could have had. In other words, you backed away from it all. Yeah. You, you, you decided that you wouldn't be doing the promo or the press. Is, is that a good idea? I mean, there's so much out there. Anything, any kind of mention of anything. Uh, I mean, is no? it a good thing or is it a bad thing? I, like, I would 
based on everything that I've spoken to my team about in the two weeks since I've put out a record, it's been a good thing. So yeah. I would, it's, I'm in a position where I could like, I guess, experiment with the reality of it because like this album was made quickly, was made from a very sort of like kinetic perspective where I wanted to do it quickly, release it quickly. So I wasn't in a huge wind up for an album release. So the opportunity I saw to just take a, a, a considered step back and just let the music just do the thing that I wanted to do while also articulating that like that's how I've always seen it like that I make music I've never considered myself a public speaker I never considered myself a social media presence or like an influencer I'm just a person that makes music and for once I just wanted to just do that Dave I think it's fair to say pushed back ever so slightly the nature of the internet and the way that people kind of, uh, I don't know, react in real time and with basic impunity, of course, as well, it's really started kind of to change the dynamic of the whole thing. So just remember one thing, James, with social media and the internet, no one can hide from feedback. Yeah. Like, you know, you're in a you're in a class of every single person. Yeah. That, that might make, like, it's not, it's not, like, they're not getting at you. What, in what, yeah, like, Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, as in, you're like, are you saying that like everybody's ev- getting it? Ev- <laughs> well, like, yeah, everybody suffers the same way, but suffers in inverted commas. Yeah, yeah, everybody. Yeah, I know. I mean, so, and that's doesn't that make you feel better. At least you're in a club of everybody. <laughs> no, because like, I wish you know, I went there on your own. No, because I would love it if no one was in that club. Like, well, I, I, yeah, I know, but I mean, like, yeah, it's well, almost why is that an accepted? Why is that an accepted parameter of like modern life? That like, did I have, say it was accepted? No, but but my point being, like, that 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 is kind of the thing that we we sort of quantify and qualify these things by saying, like, oh, we're all in the same boat and we all feel the same way. And I've said lots of people reached out to me to say that they felt the same way, but we're just kind of accepting it. And I just think that that's an interesting modern societal thing where we just kind of go, everybody can say anything for the rest of their lives with impunity because that's the, you know, the town square or whatever. Yeah. Why is that a thing? I've <laughs> yeah. never, like, I've never, I don't know. I've never known a life where I felt this compelling need to be in a room with a bunch of, like, people that, like, just yelling at each other. Yeah. It's just never something that I've, I've needed. So this idea that that is the next evolutionary step in society just seems like... I would just question the the viability. Okay, well, of that. I'm going to play. It. So no twittering for him, but with Ryan Tara Lovett, who is writing a play about what she described as the oldie Twitter, the Telegram. I um August eighteen fifty eight, the first public and official transatlantic message was sent via cable across the Atlantic from Valencia. Queen Victoria to U.S. President James Buchanan. So there's a strong Irish connection to the technology, if you like. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, Valencia was, you know, a, a key hub. And in the like, if you actually go down to Valencia, you can actually see the cable. Like, you can actually touch. They have sections of the cable Amazing. on display. Absolutely fantastic. But there were so many attempts to make that connection between Valencia and a place called Hearts Content in Newfoundland to get that cable going. I mean, talk about don't give up. Three attempts, four attempts. Yes. There were some wonderful coded messages sent back in the day when I was doing my research. Very interesting um, telegram operator in Khmer who sent a message to Valencia that then went on to the US to to let them know in the US that the 1916 rising was happening. Get a message to John DeVoy and, and the message was coded. So what was sent was, Mother's operation was successful. Wow, that's amazing. So it's like brilliant, like that's pure theatre. Well, that is very interesting, but nothing coded about this little exchange. Jeez, we're all wearing shorts today. 
<laughs> Someone's been spying on the camera here. <laughs> Just to let you know that the Knobbly Needs competition. <laughs> Are you going to shout up Upper County now as well? It's a, it's a, there's a common factor here. No, but I just want to say I'm proud of my legs. <laughs> no reason to hide them. That's a playback moment. <laughs> I just want to say it's the first time it's ever been said in the sports report. I just want to say I'm proud of my legs. Shay, shay, shay. Utterly shameless. And yet you're in. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Arena hitting the road in spots. Over in Galway for the Arts Festival and chatting to Sonia Kelly, whose new play is called The Last Return. And it's about people scrambling for the last few tickets for a big deal play. Think theatre foyer turned mosh pit. And it was based on personal experience. So I went to queue and the box office person said, oh, just queue over there. And I said, well you know which end is the end of the queue and she was like I don't know it's up to the queue to organize themselves and and, uh, and what followed I, I can only describe as three hours of carnage um, as people showed up to queue for a last return and by queuing I mean jump the queue um, pretend that they were here earlier pretend they couldn't understand what you were saying so they could sit ahead of you people put their bags on chairs people it was it was um, and it just made me think about conflict and scale and the way people behave around each other when they know that they will never see each other again and and the function of the social veneer how we deploy charm to get what we want what is the difference between the territory of the stool in front of me and the uh, being ahead the person being ahead of me and me trying to get that territory and the grapple for territory on a global scale. Yeah, because uh, interestingly enough, we hear uh, the the European Union anthem, I think, very early on in the yes. play, Beethoven's Ode to Joy, at the beginning of the play, in fact. So you are obviously thinking uh, of how the, the, I suppose, the micro can yes. really tell us things on a, on a macro basis. On the macro scale, and also um, it's an examination of Europe. It's an examination of its, its horror and its beauty. Um, it's a comment on all of that. So it, the show does begin with the, the Ode to Joy, and in, in that, in the Latin lyrics, you know, there are allusions to united in diversity, and I suppose the play is trying to question whether we are. Oh, that sounds very interesting indeed. Sonia Kelly has heard on Arena. Meanwhile, over on Mooney Goes Wild, they are taking it very easy indeed. Sitting on the couch, scratching and celebrating an animal so lazy it doubles as a deadly sin. Would you say sloth or sloth? Personally, I would I would pronounce it a sloth. And that was the voice of Julian Fontenot, lead ranger at Photo Wildlife Park, settling a scrap. And on April 30th in Photo, they had the birth of their very first sloth. It's now starting to move around, although very, very slowly. And we got an insight into this creature's biology. Forta has extreme animals. It has the fastest, the um, cheetah, and it has the tallest, the giraffe. And now it has the laziest and most slow-moving of all, the sloth, which is a wonderful achievement. Now, this thing is very unusual, it seems to me, because it's like a cow. It's got a four-chambered stomach in order to break down leaves. It is an extraordinary biology, really, unique uh, among small animals like that. Can you develop that for us? It is a mammal, but unlike uh, most of the mammals, they, they won't be shivering or they won't be able to shiver so, uh, and bring up their uh, uh, body temperature. So they would be 
closer to reptiles for that way. They don't produce as much body heat anyway for themselves. And uh, so that's why they have actually a really slow digestive system, you know, where, where it takes up to 10 days to, uh, to digest leaves. And that's what they're gonna, only going to pass motions anyway, uh, once, uh, once a week or 10 days. And then that's, that's also, you know, that, that lack of energy, which uh, would make them uh, uh, sleep 15 to 20 hours a day. And, uh, and then just be active the rest of the time, uh, mainly for feeding. They rarely move uh, on the actual ground that they, they would be fairly, uh, fairly open to predators. In fact, so lazy is the sloth that it doesn't even groom itself. Wild sloth would have algae uh, growing on their hair, uh, so they don't really groom themselves. Uh, they actually let the algae grow, so they will be they will be becoming green and uh, sort of blending in leaves. So that's the uh, their main system of defense is really just trying to blend in with, with the surroundings. Uh, they can actually use that uh, algae as well to to eat uh, if they are not finding enough food, uh, that would be uh, one of the source of uh, nutrition for them. Now at this point you would be forgiven for thinking, how mellow is the sloth? How chilled? Well, you would be wrong. They have quite the reputation. And are they vicious? Uh, I'd say they would have their own uh, personality. They actually have fairly sharp teeth inside uh, those jaws, so uh, they could do some damage and they would, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure they would, they would try if uh, if they, they would feel endangered, really. From Mooney Goes Wild. But teaching us all to be more sloth without the vicious is Associate Professor of Psychology at UCD, Dr Paul Dalton. And he was soothing the furrowed brows of Cormac and Sarah. Busy, busy, busy. But not always such a laudable thing. We use our busyness very often to avoid emotions or feelings that we don't want to feel. Is that so, a bad thing? Not always. Um, I've always said um, that there's a den- a denial is given a really hard time. There are times when our internal emotional states are too strong and we need to distract ourselves from them. But if we get caught in that. So, so one of the skills that we really need to learn is that capacity to, to notice our emotional state. So I think this is the take home. So when we slow down and we notice an emotional state, what happens is that emotion spikes. So it gets actually stronger. It can feel like it's getting stronger. That's why we don't want to slow down. But what the research tells us is what happens is when we slow down, we notice an emotion that's here. What happens is it plateaus. And if we can tolerate the plateau of the emotion, so it levels out, if we can tolerate the plateau of the emotion, then the emotion drops. Then we interrupt the, 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 the momentum and we're actually able to begin to slow down. And to help us do that, he had some homework. But it's nice homework. Even to, li- to, to, to listeners right now, I mean, even think to yourself, what, what am I feeling right now? What's the kind of emotion going on right now? So if, you, if you're standing in the kitchen doing the dishes, what's the emotion going on right now? And there's incredible, incredible benefit um, in what the, the, so the, this week's exercise is the name and tame. So if we name an emotion, we begin to tame it. So that might be, I'm feeling, geez, I'm feeling irritation here. I'm feeling um, a little agitated. I'm feeling at ease. Um, I don't, I want this to be. So <clears throat> naming the emotion will begin to tame it. And in that way, as we talked about, it begins to, it's, it is a form of, of emotional literacy. 
So, so when we slow down, even for a moment right now, and we name how we're feeling, we begin to be able to manage it a little bit. Our tendency is to, is to run away from emotions or to run with them. Okay. So that is our homework for this week. Name the emotion. Tame the emotion. I'm or, not sure. I'm not sure. I know. even I name it. So, just, so let's just name it. Yeah, just name forget. it. Yeah, let, just name it, Sarah. And watch yourself when you try to explain it to yourself. Okay. Why? Why? Why am I in bad form? Why am I irritated? No, 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 Don't no. Do stop that. that. Stop that. Don't stop that. that. Just, just name. Name just yeah, with a really it. soft, gentle voice. And that shouldn't take too long, should it? Uh, sec- seconds. Okay. Seconds that can save your and change your life. Okay. I hope everybody at home is doing that now. Stop. Think. Name the emotion. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny. This is really serious, Paul. Yes, I don't know is. why you're laughing. <laughs> it really is very serious. <laughs> well, listeners in Limerick or Kilkenny, I suspect they're feeling tension. It's all Ireland weekend. It's or Christmas or Thanksgiving or Hanukkah. And this time it occurs in mid-July. Limerick and Kilkenny. A few years ago, it was impossible to imagine Limerick being the favourites in an All-Ireland final against the Cats. Even as things stand, with Limerick going for three in a row this weekend, they haven't beaten Kilkenny in a final since 1973. What Limerick have put together with the help of schools, clubs, a state-of-the-art academy with resources and innovative minds at the steering wheel is a hurling team which has been a progression on the great Kilkenny team who were the ruling power for so long. And like those stripey men they have a series of players who'll go straight into the game's hall of fame when they're done that Kilkenny have caught up so quickly and present a clear and dangerous threat to Limerick on Sunday is one of the great achievements of the Cody era. Kilkenny have adapted themselves to the new game without imitating. A long hot afternoon in Crow Park can take its toll, but Limerick's size and physicality can suck the energy as much as the blazing sun. Their stats show more success from short puck outs in comparison to the Cats. Surely Kilkenny will press them and make them go long? Time will tell. The treaty won't admit it, but motivation-wise they'll have held on to the semi-final loss of 2019 like a cudgel. Whoever wins on Sunday will need their best performance of the year. A draw on two weeks additional lease in the summer would be nice, but Limerick are closer to the finished article. Hurling Nation says it's Limerick's to win Des and join the exclusive club of Cork, Tip and Kilkenny who have achieved the three-peat in hurling. So sit back and look forward to watching outstanding sports people being tested to their limits in what promises to be a magnificent occasion for the beautiful game. Ooh, don't logue Cusack, Morning Ireland, edging it just towards Limerick. But what does the Marty Party think? All right, put up or shut up moment now, <laughs> Marty Morrissey. Limerick for the big mo, the big momentum behind them or the Cody master plan to come good on Sunday? I find it very difficult to go against Mr Cody, I can assure you, because Kilkenny have got it. They, they, I love Kilkenny hurling. I love it for the simple reason is they hook, they block, they do the essentials. But I just think that Limerick are coming with a very high level of intensity. They've wanted to have a crack at Kilkenny since they lost in 2019. So by um, 51% to 49%, I'm giving giving my hesitant vote to Limerick. (laughs) And then I duck and I run out of the studio and hopefully nobody was listening. (laughs) Uh, Don't think about heading west of the Shannon for a while. Oh, head down, Marty. They're coming for you. Well, that is it for this week's Playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Stay cool.